Everybody, you are listening to List It, the show where me and a guest rank and list things in pop culture. Uh, the goal of this show is to make arguing and debating on the internet fun, and because we like to talk about fun things. And and so far, there has been very little arguing or debating, so that's that's always fun too. Well, my guest today is a, a dear friend of mine. She's the author of the best-selling books, President Over Perfect, Bread and Wine, Bittersweet, and to- Cold Tangerines, as well as a speaker, a podcast a foodie, and one of the coolest people I know. Welcome to the show, Shauna Nequest. Hey, how are you? Good. We were just catching up. Uh, you're you're a New Yorker now, which is which is really cool. Yeah, I don't and, know technically speaking when you get to say you're a New Yorker. There's like a lot of rules about that, but I yeah. live here is what I will okay. say. All right. I live so, here. All right. So you, you live in New York, yes. uh, evolving into a New Yorker. Yes. And so before we jump into our list, so listeners should know, we are talking about our favorite uh, memoirs. And I threw in a couple of biopics on my list as well. Um, but before we get to that, uh, you know, I think everyone that, that knows you knows that you um, like it. Would you do you like the term foodie? Is that do you, do you think that's uh, like I never know if that's like a, a term of endearment or one that people are like, oh, I don't know about foodie. You know what? I would say there are there are a handful of terms that make me crazy. And yeah. foodie is not one of them. Foodies, yeah, I feel neutral about it. I, I, okay. I, I don't like wear a t-shirt that says that, but it doesn't offend me. I, could I say this? How about um, uh, uh, cuisine expert or oh. enthusiast? Yeah. I, I usually just say snack enthusiast or hungry person. <laughs> you don't. Okay. If, but if you say snack enthusiast, they're going to think you're like me, which is like a hot pocket <laughs> a hot enthusiast. Pocket, right? <laughs> if people, like some of the best meals that I've ever eaten were with you, you know, and, and you took us to a, a, particularly to an Italian place in Chicago one time. Cortino. That was just, yeah. Which is unbelievable. So, so you've been in New York for a while now. I feel like the obvious question, and this is probably, you probably get this all the time and probably annoyed, but I have to ask it anyway, because, when I go to New York, like I like to go to John's Pizza, and I think it's in, they have one in Greenwich Village, and mm-hmm. they have one right off Broadway. Yes. Um, now, is that what tourists think is good New York pizza, or is that good New York pizza? No, so that's a both, um, okay. because our New York friends have taken us there specifically to the one in the village. Yeah. Um, but I did, right when I got here, I, of course, did a deep dive into the pizza situation here, yeah. and there was a there's a... Um, a memoir that I read, and I forget the name of it. I'll have to look it up. But it's yeah. a guy who tried every slice from every slice like spot, yeah. and he went north to south on the island of Manhattan. Okay, um, he was a, um, a bike. He was like a food delivery guy. Like he yeah. would like deliver burritos to fancy people in Midtown for their yeah. lunch. But when he wasn't working, he would like go through this list, and his favorite is one that I would consider one of the best I've ever had. And it's Pizza Suprema right by Penn Station. Okay. Pizza Suprema. Yes, it's very good. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. I like I said, whenever I whenever I go, I feel like the, with the thing with John's, it's like I know what I'm gonna get, and uh, but I, I'm I'm convinced. If you're telling me it's good pizza, then it's good pizza. It is good. It's very good. So, so today I'm really excited about our list because I've done a couple, uh, you know, we were talking earlier, I did uh, a list with Tyler Huckabee, our good buddy about Christopher Nolan movies. And I'm very um, excited to listen to that one with my son. Yeah. yeah we, we, uh, it was fun to do a deep dive, but I feel like there's no better person to do a deep dive on our favorite memoirs. And, and like I said, I threw in a couple biopics because kind of in the spirit of it um, than you, because not only have you written, you know, some incredible uh, books in the memoir genre, I feel like you're such a, a uh, you know, curious reader too. Like whenever I talk to you about something you're reading, it's a, like, just like your pizza recommendation. It's like, you can <laughs> drop like a reference just like that. So Sean, before we get into our list in your mind, what makes like a good memoir kind of stand out in your well, mind? Okay. So I'm so glad you asked because yeah. I, I put some thought into like, first I went and I made the list of, of the ones I love. And then yeah. I tried to figure out like, what's the through line? What is it that I love about each of these? Um, and what I came to is, are you familiar with the writer Vivian Gornick? No. She She's a memoirist herself, okay. but she also wrote a book that I would totally recommend to any writer of any kind. Okay. Um, it's called The Situation and the Story. Okay. And it's about memoir writing and what makes it successful. Wow. So the situation is 
where did this take place during what time period, what happened, right? It's the location in history and geography. But then the story is how it travels from that situation into something meaningful for the reader. Mm. So it's the voice, it's the connection to culture, it's the theme, it's the emotion that it elicits. And so I would say a great memoir essentially does that, is able to travel from just a specific situation, this happened to me, to this, the reason this matters to me, even though it happened in a totally different time period and world and situation. Yeah. So it has to be able to tell us something about our lives or ourselves beyond just the situation in which it was written. Is that's what I'm saying is the criteria. Yeah, that's that's such a cool criteria. And I'm looking at the two that I kind of put on my list. And I'm like, man, that nails it. That's why I love the I didn't like think about it in those terms. But now when you kind of say it, it's like, oh, that does make sense. Like the the kind of setting and the time are almost characters in the story in a way. Mm, yeah. But even if even if that's something that the reader hasn't directly experienced, I feel like there are still great takeaways. And and that's, you know, that's what I feel like I, I've really enjoyed about your among the things I've really enjoyed about your books is like, you know, we, we get to hear you. from your perspective and your stories, but you also feel affirmed and and also like validated in a way. Like when you connect with a memoir some, there are moments when you're reading a good memoir where you're like, oh, it's okay to feel that. Mm-hmm. Like this person, and maybe the writer is more equipped to articulate and kind of unpack feelings and perspectives, but ultimately it, it you know, it, it helps people understand their own situations better because you're kind of reading someone who's a professional writer kind of unpack it for them, you know? Well, that's a huge compliment. I think one of the things I work hardest at or like the one of the biggest markers of a successful essay or book or whatever is, um, can someone who hasn't experienced that exact thing still feel like the emotional resonance Mm. of it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm Shauna. I'm stoked to get into your list. Let's go ahead and start at number. So we did four. We did, I did, I did two memoirs, two biopics and you have four memoirs, right? I do. Okay. So let's start. I also have some biopic ideas though. So I'm interested to hear yours. Okay, cool. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I have, and I, and afterwards I'll read through, um, I'll read through the, um, my my and you can too your honorable mentions list like perfect this one was actually really i feel like after i was doing it and putting together my list, i was like i may have made it too broad you know because i was like i could have done just like coming of age memoirs or just you know um music biopics because both genres have so much to offer but it's true we kept it broad which I, I feel like is still fun so what is the number four uh book on your list of memoirs okay so i'm i'm putting this at number four because i have not finished it yet so i mean okay Anything could happen in these last several pages. It could, could just, take a twist. It could be number one, or could, you could be like, I didn't see that coming. That's totally. out of the top four. Yeah. Hopefully it's got a good ending. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, it's so good. I was actually trying to finish it this morning uh, before I talked with you, but it's um, Memorial Drive by okay. Natasha Trethaway. Cool. What, t- tell, what's, the, what's the premise? Uh, so she is a woman. Uh, I, she's a poet, I believe, by profession and a professor. And she is writing, uh, her memoir is about, she's in her probably her 50s now. And she's writing about when she was 19 years old, when her mother was murdered by mm. her stepfather. Oh my gosh. And so it's a story about a specific event, but it's also about you know what it means to be a daughter and to yeah. have a mother and to experience loss. It's also, um, it, uh, there, uh, she is biracial and grew up in Mississippi. And so there are all sorts of like social and political and race related aspects to it. The mm. quality of her writing is just absolutely beautiful. And so she's, she's doing a thing where, you know, she's looking at her own childhood memories in such a specific, yeah. beautifully written way. But then it also has all of these other implications for what it means to be a Southerner and a woman and a person yeah. who's biracial and a daughter. It is absolutely fantastic. Man, I'll have to check it out. It's funny because a lot of those same themes, like someone who dealt with like violence in a kind of a domestic situation, biracial, um, you know, kind of in a complicated time was, and it, this didn't make my list, but it's a fantastic book is Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. Where I have he heard, was, yeah. 
he he was born in it's funny because a lot of those similar themes kind of uh you know experienced kind of profound domestic violence at a young age but also grew up you know kind of in you know the apartheid era of south africa where you know being biracial you know it was actually a crime for his mother and father to to be together now so when was memorial drive when is it set did you say um well it, it was written it was released fairly recently but it was 30 years ago that this crime okay. happened. Yeah. Now, so the the book is set 30 years ago and you know, you said a lot there's some social and racial themes in it. Mm-hmm. Being in the moment we are now, where I feel like those, you know, a lot of, um, you know, racial justice issues are back in the forefront of conversations and reading from a perspective of 30 years ago, how did it kind of, did it, did it not challenge, but did it kind of put today's kind of um, uh, social and racial tensions kind of in a different light at all for you? Well, I would say, I would say two things. I would say, you know, um, it's really important to me to be a really a good learner and listener right now. Um, I think for those of us who have not experienced um, racism and who live with the privilege of our um, whiteness, it's important for us to be learners and listeners. And the way I learn, the the primary way I engage with um, is through books. So like, whenever I want to learn about something, I start with a book list and I start asking, especially people of color in my life, like, what should I be reading? What's kind of required reading for this moment? And so I would say this falls right within kind of the center of that. I just want to be learning more stories that are outside of my own experience. And then I would say you're exactly right. Um, Part of the privilege um, of whiteness is the naivete of thinking things have been better than they were Yeah, um, because I didn't experience it every day. Um, And this book um, among many others really is helping me understand there's so much that I thought that I assumed in my naivete was resolved or was better than it was. Yeah. And this is a really important education for me in understanding, uh, yeah, the, the, the darkness and the horror that our country, even our recent history, yeah. I mean, certainly our present, but also our quite recent history. It's, it's, it's much worse, you know, for lack of a better term than I kind of in my pretty sheltered world had understood. Yeah. It, it's funny you say, and I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to bend my own rules here because the, uh, my number four is it's a biopic, but I feel like it plays on some of those same themes. Um, and it's, it's a movie that came out just a couple of years ago, but it's Selma, um, yeah. d- directed by who I think is arguably one of the most important filmmakers working today, Ava DuVernay. Oh, absolutely. I'm and, a huge and, fan. And it's so, and it's also set uh, around a few decades ago, 1965, um, and it follows Dr. Martin Luther King as they do the uh, Selma to Montgomery uh, march for voter rights justice. And I think one of the big takeaways from that film is one, sadly, not how much th- how much things have changed, but how much they've they've remained the same. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, a lot of the things that Dr. King and this, this the the film is fighting for uh, are things that people today, you know, we've kind of seen with the with the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the recent uh, protests. You know, these are a lot of the the same things that a lot of these uh, protesters that were led by Dr. King were suffering through. But I think what makes that that film good and what I think makes good memoir so good is you're not just it doesn't just paint a broad picture it's not like you're reading a history book it's like you see what the impact of what's happening is to someone's personal life and a character um have did you have you seen selma shauna i have and i loved it i thought it was wonderful yeah it's it's an incredible movie um also obviously takes place in the south too which um you know as someone, because you grew up in the Midwest, now you mm-hmm. live in New York, mm-hmm. do you, when you're looking for a good story or memoir, do you seek out places that are different regions to kind of immerse yourself in that setting or or does that even kind of factor in? That's an interesting question. I would say, you know, specifically, I, I always say that I'm I'm like so not a Southerner, like just, I've never lived there. I don't, there's, there's so many parts of kind of my worldview that feel like distinctly non-Southern, except I think the the southern southern literature really connects with me. That yeah. kind of, especially that like southern kind of gothic, the, the the sort of intensity of storytelling. Yes, thank you, Flannery yeah. O'Connor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I always say it's the, the Southern food and the Southern literature. I, I yeah. am not a Southerner, but I absolutely love those two aspects of Southern culture. And there are certain parts of the country or parts of the world that kind of draw me more than others. And the South is one of them. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, that is now on my to read list, Memorial Drive at number four. And like uh, I had on my number four, like I said, so because the, the theme and time or setting, I kind of threw that in. Uh, uh, Selma was on, on my list for biopics. Sean, what is your number three favorite? Uh, my number memoir? three is uh, When Breath Becomes Air by okay. Paul Kalanithi. When Breath Becomes Air. The, what a cool title, by right? the way. So, Isn't that cool how like great memoirs like even you can tell sometimes like you don't want to judge a book by a cover or just uh, a title but you just the prose of that title is really beautiful it is a beautiful title and i think titles really matter yeah um and so paul kalaniti was a uh living in california he was a doctor a medical doctor um who got um very aggressive cancer and mm. uh was a newlywed and they had not yet decided to have children. And I think there's something very moving about a medical professional grappling with the limitations mm. of their own uh, chosen profession, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a healer. He's a problem solver. He's a person who uses the best of science to bring about health and healing in our bodies. And he's not able to do that for himself. Yeah. He's confronted kind of with the limitations of that, but also... Uh, the challenge of sort of understanding what's happening to you is sort of a blessing and a curse. Mm. His medical background means he has a, a very perceptive and unusual understanding yeah. of, of what's happening along the way. And he writes so beautifully. Um, and through the process, he and his wife decide to have a child knowing mm. uh, that that child will probably not know both parents. Mm. And watching them grapple with that decision feels very beautiful. Like you're getting kind of an inside look at a, a really tender part of life and marriage and yeah. family. Yeah. And then um, I'm giving it all away. Is that okay? I'm just like, no, no that's okay. Because okay. I, I do feel like, and maybe I'm wrong because I, I'm not a, a memoirist, but I do feel like not that the story is is secondary because it's not but it's it's the perspective on a story that i feel like really is compelling i mean obviously there are twists and plot but memoirs are kind of unique in that it's not that plots don't matter but plots aren't the driver in my yeah. opinion it, it, it's it, so so i don't think unless there's some you know crazy spoiler that you feel like would give it away otherwise it's like i feel like coming into a memoir the more you know, sometimes the better. That is one of the unique genres where I feel like it's better to come in not blind because it kind of prepares you for the experience a little bit. I mean, I tend to agree. And I, I think that, I mean, I think all of that that I've said so far is probably like written on the back of the book. I don't, yeah. it's not like a cliffhanger. Yeah, you know, it's not yeah, like yeah. nobody knows what's going to happen in this guy's life. Yeah, like when yeah. breath becomes air, they just told you what's going to happen, right? <laughs> I see the implications <laughs> of the, the poetry there. Yeah. Um, but one of the, I think more kind of beautiful and sad things about it is after he's gone, his widow finishes the book for him, finishes oh, wow. writing the book. Wow. And so, you know, the idea of kind of this shared calling to tell this story, the way mm. that she continues even after he's gone, it is, um, and you know, like any book that deals with our, with, with disease and, and dying, yeah, it's about mortality in his experience, but also all of us. It's totally yeah. one of those books that makes you think like, what matters to me? What legacy do I want to leave behind? How am I conducting the, you know, the, the big parts of my life? Um, am I making the decisions that I want to outlive me in terms mm. of like my family and my work? It's yeah. very, very good. Now, you know, you mentioned one of the themes is obviously he's his perspective of personally battling cancer is he has, it seems like what is a blessing, but also a curse of having the knowledge from a medical perspective to know what's transpiring and to know, like you said, the limitations of what we can do to, to handle it. And I wonder, and maybe this is a stretch, but I feel like in a way that's sort of a microcosm, what a lot of people are finding themselves in at a different, a totally different scale. But what we're dealing with the pandemic is is more information going to help my anxiety or is it going to fuel it? Is did you feel like that was one of the tensions that that he kind of grappled with? Yeah, I think there were there were several different scenes where uh 
you realize like he's asking for information from other doctors or, you know, let's call in this guy or I know so-and-so from this hospital. And you can sometimes see some of the other doctors um, almost saying like, but buddy, that's not going to help the way you think it's going to, you know, Mm, like he kind of has to, in his own process, try everything, reach out to every expert, do that. But, but sometimes some of the doctors who are older than he is are like, I see what you're doing, but that's probably not going to, you probably just have to face the reality of this without trusting in some sort of magical loophole, you know? Yeah. But that's part of the process for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And the other question I have for you, specifically as someone who is a writer and, you know, it has has so beautifully woven personal experiences and stories and anecdotes into books that other people can use to help in their lives. You know, how do you how do you kind of balance the intimacy of talking about things that are deeply personal um, with with uh, I, I'm trying to think of the right word like authenticity, but also kind of knowing what the limitations of some of that intimacy is with a reader. Like Mm -hmm. with this book in particular, it seems like that is probably a tension that him and his widow would have to navigate is, is where are the limitations of, of, you know, emotional intimacy when it comes to dealing with something like mortality? I would say in my experience, um, as a writer, the two things that are that really help you make those decisions are time and essentially the your team. So mm, yeah. I always tell people, especially when you're going through something really difficult that you suspect might be valuable to talk about later with, mm. you know, in a in a writing way, write it all right now in mm. total detail, especially pay attention to sense details. So like yeah. How did it smell? How did the sky look? How did it feel? How did your body feel? How did that person's voice sound? Get it all out, all of it, and then give it a pretty serious amount of time. No Mm. less than six weeks. Six months is usually perfect because six months later, you realize a little bit more what that was about, right? Like I'm sure you can think of situations in your own life where the day it was happening, you understood the emotional intensity of it, but you didn't yet have a perspective for what it meant in the context of your life. But with time, you start to see that. Yeah. And, and I I feel like that goes for a lot of art as mm-hmm. well, you know, and, and this is probably the most cliched reference ever, but like even to a degree with like the, I think it was like Michelangelo quote, he said, you know, my job isn't to carve an image from a piece of marble. It's to free the image from the piece of marble. And it's almost like with these stories, like you start with something very broad but you have to in order to recognize the story and and the emotion you're trying to free from it. Absolutely. And, you know, you realize that most stories can be told a, a, a dozen different equally true ways, mm-hmm. right? So let's say, you know, you and I go out for this amazing Italian meal a couple of years ago in Chicago. Yeah. Um, that could be a story about food. It could be a story about friendship. It could be a story about Chicago. It could be yeah. a story about Italy. It could, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, you can have an experience and you can write about it and it can be equally true with multiple different um, kind of, this is a story about the moral of the story is what makes this meaningful is. And so I think that's where time helps us. And then when I said in, in terms of a team, one of the questions I'm always asking my editor, my agent, anybody I work with, I tend to share almost like I err on the side of too much because I've asked them to help me pair out what needs to be taken out along mm. the way. Yeah. So I trust them. We've worked together for a really long time. So they yeah. know anything they read, what I'm one of the things I'm asking for from them is what are the things that I probably would would rather leave out of this story for my yeah. privacy or my family's privacy. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out when breath becomes air. Uh, it's number 3. What is what is your number 2 uh, favorite memoir? My number two, I really, really love this one. Um, Educated by Tara Westover. That's my number two as well. You're kidding. No, it's such, oh, I'm so glad we're talking about this. We, oh my gosh. So for listeners sake, we did not share a list before. No. That's, you know, we, we, I, I try to come in blind to the, I don't know if that's the best idea or not, but that's, that's kind of been the approach. It, it's literally uh, number two on my list. Let, let's talk about Educated because again, for a book that it has so much 
contemporary value for people to read. Um, uh, you know, it, it takes, it's the story of a woman who grew up essentially in a survivalist kind of sect, segregated cult of, you know, of Mormonism uh, and, and her, fueled by her father's fear of institutions, mm-hmm. whether that institution was the government, whether that fear was hospitals. Again, like reading it in the context of 2020 is uh, illuminating in mm-hmm. a lot of ways wow. because, uh, you know, her father's deep fear was conspiracies, particularly involving the government. He he was very much influenced by the tragedy at Ruby Ridge and once another kind of isolated family who took themselves off the map uh, had a confrontation with the government over firearms that ended with the death of several of the family members. And that kind of fuels this sort of paranoia that Tara Westover, the author, grows up in. And again, not to give too much away, um, but that's sort of the 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 you know, the, the setting and the, and the central tension of the book. Tell me, Shauna, what was your experience re- reading Educated? Because I almost feel like it's a very jarring experience. Oh my gosh. The book. I mean, and I've, I've talked to people who have said the reading experience was very, uh, produced a lot of anxiety in them. Yeah. And I felt that same thing, especially, you know, um, I think it's easy to picture, like maybe when you, you talk about like living off the grid in a rural area, you picture like a real, like pastoral situation. Yeah. It was, so violent. The kids were getting hurt in like real weird ways yeah. constantly and then not getting adequate medical care. Yeah. Um, they were they were asked to to do work that was very unsafe. And again, they knew that they wouldn't get medical care if they needed it. So reading it was as a parent. So yeah. terrifying. And, and and there's, you know, for, for readers, I guess this is somewhat of kind of a, a, a trigger warning. There's also a domestic violence in, involved, you know, throughout the story as well. Um, you know, again, I feel like this is probably the back cover as well, but it's, it's told in multiple parts um, because Tara eventually breaks away from her family uh, and through really frees herself through education, ends up at BYU, later Cambridge and later Harvard. And so you speaking of telling a story from two different perspectives, this is someone, this is telling a story from two different perspectives of the same person because they live completely different realities. I think when I put the book down, I immediately, when I finished it, the last page, I said, I I feel like tons of my friends are teachers and, you know, it's hard to be a teacher. It's certainly hard to be a teacher right now, but you know, um, they work really, really hard. They don't have enough support. They don't get paid enough. And I wanted, I felt like one way to look at that book was like a love letter to the power of education. Mm, yeah. Like education saved her life. Yeah. And, and she was obvious. I mean, she obviously is a brilliant person in her own right, yeah. but was able to engage in the education system as a way of kind of building a path out of a really unusual and troubling world. Yeah. And it just made me like every, I, I wanted to like tell every teacher in my life, like, look what you can do for a kid in your class. Yeah. You might have no idea what world they're coming from, but yeah. you get to help build a new world for them. Yeah. And, you know, even just, um, you know, trying from, you know, her father's a central figure in the book and is really sort of why the family lives the way they do. Um, And I think we're in a time right now where, you know, so many people's worldviews are informed by a growing number are informed by conspiracy theories. And, you know, you see things with like QAnon and, and all the, and all these things. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily think this book unpacks like the motivations for those feelings, but it certainly unpacks sort of the dangers of the fringes of leaning into them because, you know, her father's, you know, terrified or, or he's actually disappointed when, y, when a Y2K apocalypse doesn't happen. You know, she talks later, she, you know, she writes about getting vaccinations later in her life that she never received as a child and and just like this constant fear that there were forces outside of anyone's control that were that required her family to live far away and 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 separate from society out out of fear of things that you know ultimately her father was grossly misinformed about well i think some of the for me some of the most striking scenes in the book were when she finally first when she first goes to BYU and you realize the gaps in her education yeah. both like just real normal life things she doesn't know how to do yeah. and whole aspects of history that have been like 
specifically not included in her worldview because of her dad's conspiracy theories about the world and world history. You realize the extent to which parents have a lot of power in in the worlds that they create for their children. And um, I do think it would be interesting to reread it right now because I, you know, I don't know, did it come out five years ago or something? Yeah. I think at least to me, well before some of these kind of conspiracy theories became more forefront in our national conversation, it would be really interesting to read it now with that, with an eye toward that. Yeah, because it's it's not just like I, I probably like reframed I probably framed it incorrectly, not just a skepticism towards institutions, but a real combativeness towards mm-hmm. inco- you know, that was her father's perspective that mm-hmm. we you know, ultimately these are evil forces that are coming after. Uh, and I, th- there's a lot more to with her father that that you know, you could unpack on a lot of levels, but you know, I kind of revisited some of this book in a you know, just because of what's the kind of world we're living in right now and also just you know, the other side of isolation, you know, you and I are are blessed enough to have families that that care for each other and, and love each other. And that being forced into close proximity 24 hours a day is has been, a you know, we we're talking offline. It's been, a you know, in a lot of ways, and that's that is a privileged thing to say, but there have been benefits to being kind of forced into these kind of new lifestyles that the pandemic has put a, a lot of sin. But this also goes to show, look, that's it's not like that for everyone, because the virtue of proximity proximity in this book is actually a fuel for domestic violence in a lot of ways. And, and you know, the fact that no one in the family can escape really plays into the fear that her father and, and, and later her brother are able to use uh, to, to kind of manipulate other members of the family. I did. I'm not, we're not all this talking about it. It's like bringing me back to that, like super anxious feeling of reading it. Oh, I think, you know, even just to take one step back the story, it's the, the situation itself to use Gornick's language is so extraordinary, but Tara Westover's way of expressing it. Yeah. Like the fact that you and I, all these years later are talking about so many details of it. Yeah. That's story. That's like incredible storytelling. Yeah. I read books all the time where I walk away and I'm like, what was that person's name? I don't know. Yeah, you feel like you know her. And, yeah. and that, she she has a and again, I feel like we're gushing over this book for good reason. Yeah. But voice is such an important thing in yes. memoir writing. Um and and I think it's a very underappreciated thing for a lot of readers, not especially ones that aren't writers. When you are writing and trying to establish your voice, because like for me, I, I have a journalism degree. And so I learned to write in AP style mm-hmm. and I, I learned a very specific way of writing. And, you know, voice wasn't wasn't even ever addressed. You, you know what I mean? Like the, the point was there was no really point beyond clarity and pace. You know, mm-hmm. like are, are you are you clearly uh, displaying the facts for the reader to understand and is the pacing at, at, at you know, a, a level where you're going to keep them engaged. But I never really thought about voice. Talk about that for a minute. Uh, finding your voice as a memoirist. I, 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 that's something that very few writers are really ever to kind of a- able to lock in on. Well, I feel like, um, and I think Tara Westover is a really good example of this. Some of the most effective use of voice is when you almost can't sense that it's happening, right? Mm, Like it just seems you'd use words like it just seems true or it's effortless or it's, you know, um, whenever someone says you write the way I think, um, that's the sign of a really effective use of voice. That's also the most difficult. Yeah. You know, it's very easy to try on a very specific voice, you know, yeah. like it's a little funny and then this and then this, and but you can always feel that it's like, um, yeah. it's like costume makeup or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more persona than, than, yeah. than, than the memoirist in a way, yeah. you know? Um, but I think, I think in my experience, I learned my voice writing my first book because I had a really, really good editor who would point out to me when I was doing it and when I wasn't Mm. because I didn't always know. So like I would try all these different things and I would have like sworn on a Bible, like this is my voice, Yeah, you know? And she was like, no, no, no. Do you see what this is? And do you see the difference between this and this? Okay. Now you're doing it. And then she'd be like, now who are you being? 
And I'd be like, yeah. oh, sorry, yeah, somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Where it's almost like, am I, am I, is this my voice or is this what I think people will want my voice to be? That exactly. is such a hard thing. That's such a hard line to walk sometimes. It is. And I think in the early stages of it, you're almost always copying a bunch of different people. And that's yeah. how you learn, right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, from a sports standpoint, we used to joke about it when my kids played Little League every kid gets up to bat and holds their bat like Chris Bryant, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's how you learn. Um, yeah. And uh, so you, you do kind of mimic other people for a while. And then yeah. as you grow into your voice, you leave behind some of their kind of little quirks or edges and start to find your own a little bit yeah. more. And I think that's when you're really getting somewhere as a writer. Yeah. Well, that, that, that makes me want to reread that book. And uh, it, it, it again, it's a book that, you know, the first time you read it, it, just it's one of those books that stays with you. And that's another thing I think about good memoirs is, it, you know, I, I have this experience with podcasts a lot when I listen to them, I go running or, or something like that. I remember where I was physically in the world. Totally. When I, I, I and it's the same way with these books. It's like, I remember the summer, I you know, like you read it. That is, that, that to me is another good, a sign of a really profound memoir. I agree. So we have Memorial Drive, When Breath Becomes Air, and Educated. All right. This is a very high bar for number one, because these are uh, uh, incredible books. What is your number one favorite memoir? My number one, and I will, I will, I'm, I'm not adding a disclaimer, but I'm like making it, I guess, even bigger. This is for sure the book I've given away more than, and that's like a thing I do. I, I give away like lots and lots of books. Um, if I like a book, I'll buy a case of them and like give yeah. them to people. I have given away at this point, I'm sure hundreds of this one. And I would say this is the one that's especially personal for me because it's the one that showed me like this was, this was the book to which I was aspiring when I became a writer. Mm. This gave me a picture of like, you're never going to be her, but at your very, very, very best, you could be like, throwing windows, throwing glass at the window or throwing yeah. rocks at the window, whatever. I just yeah. had to say that. I really, um, so Anne Lamott's Traveling Mercies oh. for me was just like, I didn't even know you could do that in a book. Yeah. And as soon as I read it, I was like, that's what I want to do. That's it. And it's aged so well. Oh my too. gosh. So, so for people that that might not be familiar with Anne Lamott or or Traveling Mercies, which really kind of brought her into the forefront of a lot of interesting conversations about faith and, and literature, uh, set, set the framework for for what the book is kind of about and why you found it so compelling. So Anne Lamott was a, a writer, a novelist, um, living in Northern California. I went to college in Central California at Westmont, and she would come down sometimes and speak at UCSB, the big college in town, and we would all go. Because she had written these novels that we really loved and and memoirs, which thought she was the, an incredible writer. She had a real, um, she's very much known for being a true California writer. I love regional writing. I love yeah. California. And then, so she was like my favorite. And um, But for writing like non-religious, beautiful, quirky California books. Yeah. And then my favorite writer wrote a book about faith because she had become a Christian. So like, I loved her when she was like, just a normal person in the world. And I was yeah. like a little girl at a Christian college. Yeah. And then all of a sudden she was talking about my faith tradition mm. and a church and Jesus and hymns. And to hear someone I respected so much in a totally different sphere, speak that language so beautifully. Yeah. Um, and she wrote about faith in such a, um, it wasn't, a theological treatise. It wasn't a sermon. It was stories about her life and also her faith and all the tactile details of life and faith and also addiction and sobriety and parenting. Yeah. And I just didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could write about faith in such a personal, beautiful, quirky way. It, it, it that and I think another book. I think it was around the same time. Uh, same time when when Don Miller released Blue Like Jazz. Yeah. I feel like Traveling Mercies and Blue Like Jazz for a lot of people gave them permission to. Mm -hmm. I feel like from a reader's perspective, because as someone who too read a lot of books, sometimes by choice, sometimes because you know it was like some authority figure in my mouth was like, "Hey, you need to read this book." It was like. And I'm not. I'm not talking about any book in particular, but a lot of the books in the genre, uh, uh, particularly Christian evangelical faith, were very rigid, and um, they were, you know, 
they seem to be kind of a lot of them around that time before these books started coming out. A lot of them had this kind of agenda e type of of thing, and I don't feel like maliciously. I feel like the intentions of a lot of faith books I've read was to help build you up in your faith, but there wasn't this sort of emotional intellectual honesty that that someone like Anne Lamont brings to the table. Well, you're, I agree with you, and there also was uh, it was like they were almost. The, this the writer's personality had been like cut out of the story. So yeah. it wasn't a story about someone's life and home and dining room table and kids and backyard. It was like the ideas in their brain about faith. Yeah. And yeah. so all of a sudden you have this whole texture of a life and a faith experience, not just the ideas that might help us. Yeah. It, I, I want to talk briefly about, you, you mentioned the regional, the regionality of her writing. Because mm-hmm. earlier we talked about like Southern literature mm-hmm. and, you know, I, 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 you know, on my desk, I have a Flandre O'Connor book and, and uh, we're talking about Memorial Drive. And I feel like a lot of Southern literature, there's a heaviness to it. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, a it, it maybe heaviness is the wrong word. There's a weight to it. Mm-hmm. There's a, every sentence holds a certain, you know, this capability. There's a drama. Perf- yeah. Yeah. Where, California writing, particularly kind of Northern California, like Anne Lamont, there is a a lightness and a grace and breeziness is the wrong word because breezy, I, I don't want that to sound dismissiveness, but I almost feel like, and this is overdoing the metaphor, but when you read something like that, the reason I think kind of breeziness is because you feel it kind of wash over you instead of, you know, it's not this bludgeoning or this emotional journey. It is sort of like, yeah, just kind of let it flow. You know, is that what is that your experience with kind of writing from that part of the country? Well, yes, and I would say there's so much. Um, there's so much connection to nature, certainly mm, yeah. in Anne Lamott's writing. I mean, you just you can smell like the tide pools, and you can picture where she's hiking, and you can, yeah. you know, they're they're very much placed in the on like on the ocean, on the coast in Northern California. And those details are so present. I feel like Joan Didion is another classic California writer. You, you understand more about California. And I would say uh, California writers a lot of times reflect. So if a Southern writer has kind of the weight of history, right? Mm -hmm. The oldest part, some of the oldest parts of our country, California has, it's very new. It tends not to be steeped in as much historical underpinning as much as like kind of nature and a little more change oriented as opposed to tradition oriented, I would say. Yeah. There's sort of, for someone like an Anne Lamont, even when you, you like, there's like a pioneering spirit about yeah. her. You know what I mean? There like is. So, someone who is always going westward. You know yes, what I mean? Always absolutely. looking. Even today, I, I feel like, you know, she still is an incredible writer. Do you, do you know, have you, I know, obviously you, you've, you know, done t- so many cool events and things. Do you know, Anne, and is, was it, was it I weird met meeting, her a couple times, yeah. Is it weird meeting someone whose book meant so much to you, especially a book as personal as Traveling Mercies? Um, I think one of the things you learn along the way as a writer and as a, you know, uh, one of the great things is you get to meet some of these people whose books have meant so much to you is um, they're just as human as the rest of us in all the best and worst ways. I mean, I could tell yeah. you like a very long story of a like truly delightful, bizarre day I spent with her. Um, <laughs> And yeah, she's amazing. And also just as like unpredictable as you might think. And the book mattered to me and I respect her as a human and those can be different things. And I don't need her to be my best friend in order for that book to have been literally a major gift in my life. You know, I don't, I don't need her as a human to do anything and she's great, but the book exists in such a special way in my life. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, what a great list. So yours were Memorial Drive, When Breath Becomes Air, Educated, which I also had on mine, and Traveling Mercies. Mm-hmm. Um, my number four, like I said, I threw two biopics in. Just be, we've done a lot of movie stuff. And I was like, it's kind of in the spirit of it, like okay. you know, the, the power of someone's story. So I had Selma at number four. My number three, my other uh, memoir is uh, Dave Eggers' A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Yes. That was fabulous. And yeah, it's such an interesting book, and it for 
uh, people who may have heard the name, I feel like it's a name that kind of gets thrown a lot around a lot, but haven't you know been able to check out the book. Released back in uh, 2000, but um, you know, kind of takes place a, a little bit before he. You know, Dave Eggers is, I feel like, a big figure in Gen X culture. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I kind of at the time this book came out, a lot of the things I was turning to. I, I'm a little bit younger than Dave. I was I graduated high school in 2001, um, but um, but a lot of the writing that I like gravitated towards because I just wanted to kind of learn the craft were at that time Gen X writers. And so, uh, but again, from like a time and place, this is firmly rooted in sort of Gen X culture and this excitement and also um, anxiety about what the future holds. And really, that's the theme of the book. So for pe- people who haven't read it, uh, you know, in the book, Dave Eggers is is in his early 20s, and both of his parents unexpectedly pass away around the same time. And he has other siblings, but he takes it upon himself to raise his then seven-year-old brother. Um, um, but at the same time, he's this, you know, San Francisco Gen Xer that is wants to launch a magazine and is into music and wants to hang out drinking and find out who he is. And, you know, suddenly the weight of adulthood and, and parenting and responsibility and the optimism and kind of recklessness and fun of youth crash into each other head on and really create such an awesome experience. Have you got a chance to read a heartbreaking work of Sagarine Gina Sean? Oh, absolutely. And I love Dave Eggers. And I feel like what's interesting about that book, when, when that juxtaposition that you're bringing up, it, it's like, um, if you wanted to be a little critical of kind of that Gen X moment, it was more that first side of things that you were talking about, the like experimentation and starting things and a little reckless. And there was a little less of that like responsibility and groundedness until the Gen Xers got older, right? And then had to like do that stuff. He did that really early on, both in his life and in that particular movement. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. The other thing I'd say about this, and like I said, I, I... I picked this up when I was probably a little bit too young to to relate to a lot of the experiences, but um, I remember again. I was I went to I have a journalism degree, and the way they taught you to write, they taught you how to write, but they didn't ever teach you the craft of it. You never you never learned prose. Like I never took a, a, a class on prose, but I remember. So I went to a bookstore, and I just like went who had like interesting books that were so it was like Zadie Smith. Uh, Michael Shabon, Jonathan Franzen, and I was like, uh, and this book by Dave Eggers. And I still remember not just like the story, but I still remember visual metaphors. Like I remember when he, there's a scene where he first realized his father who had very rapid onset terminal cancer. He sees his father in the driveway and the way he describes it, looking out the window at his father, his hands were, he was on his hands and knees and his hands were like spread out on the driveway. And he said, it looked like roots coming out from an old tree in both of his arms would look like the roots of an old tree had died in his finger. And it's like, I such and again, this is Dave Eggers. Anyone who's read his stuff knows that that is kind of his wheelhouse. Is is even when even when the story kind of loses your interest, the prose never does. And he's one of those writers. I remember when Christopher Hitchens died, and I know he's sort of a controversial figure, um, uh, especially sort of in the new atheism movement. But um, I rem- but he's still a fantastic. That doesn't discredit him as a writer. Mm-hmm. I remember when he died. One of the obituaries that I that I read that said he was incapable of writing a boring sentence, Ugh. and I just thought, what a freaking compliment! And Dave Eggers is also like a lot of the the people on your list, the, Tara Westover, for example. When every sentence it mm-hmm. never lets you down, I feel like man, that's that's a talented writer. I love that. I love that book absolutely. Yeah, good call. Yeah, and. uh and, and he's such cool, like also like it's such a cool Gen X figure too. Because like he, like they, <laughs> the Nick Hornby was gonna like adapt it for screen, and it's like of course, of Nick course, Hornby. Absolutely. Yeah, who else Definitely. would you know? So <laughs> I'm I'm bummed it never got made, but totally. it probably is better that it didn't because the book that you have it, the story you have in your mind, is probably way better than a than a movie Nick Hornby would make. Even no no dig on Nick Hornby as a writer, but he's another one that that I would I would suggest people to check out. Oh, I Nick think he's Hornby. great, absolutely. Douglas yeah. Copeland as well another yeah. favorite from that time yeah uh uh chuck closerman who oh, yeah? I, not a memoir well i guess there's a book called um there's one that's like a fictionalized memoir okay. that um that he wrote most of his uh, he does well um you know what killing yourself to live I, I i'm gonna change my number one i have my number one as a biopic and i'm gonna okay. i'm gonna call an audible 
And wow. I'm going to do, um, I, I, I was going to do Fargo Rock. I, I'm going to call an audible. I had walked the line because I was going to do a biopic. Oh, that's great. Yep. Um, but I, I'm going to save that since we're kind of on the book thing. And, okay. um, uh, Chuck Closman's his formal kind of memoir is uh, Fargo Rock City, okay. which is about being <laughs> a metalhead stuck in North Dakota. Um, but I, I, I'm going to change it to um, a book he wrote called Killing Yourself to Live. Okay, and uh, he, it, it, the style was very experimental. So Chuck Closman at the time was an editor at Spin Magazine, um, and he was a transplant from North Dakota, from the Midwest to New York. And so he's, he's living in New York, working at a rock magazine, which I used to work at, uh, relevant, which was kind of, uh, uh, you know, a music was a big thing. So I kind of gravitated towards his writing. Uh, so he, he, he moves to New York and I actually was a big reader of spin at the time. Sure. And I remember, um, they, when he first read it, he wrote a magazine article where he went to the sites. It, it's a dark premise, but, 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 um, the writing really kind of um, does an interesting juxtaposition because the, the assignment he pitched to his editors was, I'm going to travel to the site of where, where rock stars died around the country. Wow. And I'm going to write about what that experience is, is like. Wow. And so he he gets in a car by himself and and goes to where like Sid and Nancy had their kind of, you know, all, all, all these kind of famous uh, uh, Jeff Buckley, you know, all these, there's a tragic number of musicians yeah. who have died young, you know, the, the 27 Club. But he wrote it as sort of a travel piece for the magazine, but he turned the experiences into a book. And what I, what I feel like is so interesting about it isn't necessarily the rock history. Like you don't have to be a fan of of American rock history to appreciate the book. In a lot of ways, it's a book about wow. being alone on the road. You know, he does a lot of uh, thinking about road books and be, and what it's like to be young, to be on the road, to be on assignment, but no one's checking on you. He's a big basketball fan. He makes a detour. And I still remember the scene in the book to the Basketball Hall of Fame. And uh, they Where actually- uh, it's Springfield, uh, Massachusetts. Okay. So, so near where, near where the sport was invented, but he goes and he says like, they had like a basketball court in the basement that after you toured the museum, you could shoot hoops. And he, he has a moment where he goes down there and it's like, yeah, it'd be fun to shoot some hoops. And he realized how profoundly bad he was at basketball. Like he was like, it was just like a revelation that he had, but if he wasn't alone and he wasn't out on the road, he would have never come to a kind of a dumb revelation uh, like that about himself. But that kind of becomes a metaphor for a lot of things later in the book where he didn't realize how bad he was at things till he just set out alone, being young in his first job on the road, not wanting to mess it up, you know, and but also kind of freewheeling. There's parts of the book where he has conversations with himself, you know, sure. like his alter egos. And it's a book about self-discovery through the lens of travel, of, like I said, kind of solitude, but also this dark, heavy shadow of, well, I'm going to the place to see where people died. Totally. And, and and while he's there, really, you know, Elvis or whoever, you know, really comes to think about their lives, but also think about their deaths and their legacies and really think about his. And it's a weird book because it the, the the topic's weird. It's kind of a gimmicky premise, but it's such an interesting experience reading it and and really challenged me as like a young culture writer. Well, I love that. I, um, two things that I definitely will read it. I, I mean, talk about road books are just like a whole other genre. Yeah. Um, you know, I think especially American, you know. Yeah, the, I mean, ever since Kerouac, it's totally, really been, yeah. yeah. There's something very young and romantic and also a little bit tragic about kind of the open road and writers and that tradition. But then also, uh, my kids are super into music. And a lot of times they'll ask us questions about, okay, so, you know, a huge Beatles fan. So like, was John Lennon a better musician than Paul? Yeah. Well, it's apples and oranges because we get to see Paul as a 70 something year old man, we yeah. never got to see who John would have been. You know, yeah. we have questions about like Freddie Mercury or, you know, um, and there you can see them trying to learn about music history and they're trying to categorize the influence of different musicians, but they don't necessarily know. Uh, it's tricky for them to understand how 
one one person's life and therefore musicianship and kind of what legacy has been cut short or sometimes over romanticized because yeah. it was cut short. So we talk about that a lot in our it, house. It, it, it's a, and that's that's a great thing about his right Closerman's writing in general is he he that's what he constantly kind of thinks about. And you know, I mean you think of a figure like Elvis who, mm-hmm. you know, if he had just retired young, just hypothetically, you know, mm-hmm. again, that's kind of the fun of these conversations talking about creative hypotheticals. Right. It's like, not only would we think about his legacy differently, like mm-hmm. I think we all kind of picture him in the jumpsuit in Vegas later in his life or whatever, um, you know, kind of leaning into the persona. But we also think about his music as sort of like it was appropriative, you know, it's, you know, musically, it's not really, it's more novelty than anything. But is that because we have old Elvis, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or if he, if we just had him young, you know, right. totally. would have changed our perception of, of who he is and the importance or even the problematic nature of some of his music, you know? Absolutely. And I, and then I think you look, you know, you were mentioning walk the line earlier. What's amazing about someone like Johnny Cash is you get to watch them mature as an artist and as a human and yeah. as a husband and a dad. And you get to see all these iterations of both his musicianship and his like cultural perspective that you don't get with someone where their life is cut short. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad you met because uh, again, I had that on my list and I do think that what's interesting about that movie and, and later Johnny crashes Cash's career, you know, that movie takes place in a relatively small window and really focuses on his relationship with June Carter cash, mm-hmm. which was such an important linchpin in his life to, you know, not just helping him with addiction, but also creatively. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but when you talk about musicians who aged so gracefully and maybe, maybe the, the opposite of like the Elvis path, you know, you listen to those, the America uh, uh, records that Rick Rubin produced. Um, You know, I think most people are probably most familiar with his cover of Trent Reznor's hurt, which Um, is just like genius. Oh, even the video too, because the video is essentially a retrospective of Johnny Cash's life, Mm -hmm. the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, But you hear the quivering voice, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you're supposed to, Johnny Cash was this baritone, you Mm -hmm. know, like, you know, I walked a lot, you know, it's just like, that's, it was strength. It was, it was, but when you listen to the the later records, he leaned into how it quivered and how you felt a frailty to it in a kind of a beautiful way, not a sad one, you know? Well, and in a way it, to me, that represents kind of the, the maturity and kind of the freedom that comes with that maturity. Like you don't do that when you're like a young dude trying to look cool. Yeah. You let those aspects of your musicianship and even your actual voice come out when you're secure enough and what you've already built yeah. to show kind of your humanity. That feels really, really beautiful to me. Yeah. Well, Shauna, this was so fun. I feel like I could just talk culture with you all day. I, <laughs> okay, I, so same time next week. Yeah, I got I got a reading list now too. Um, uh, can I give you one biopic that I loved? Yes, I, like yes, I didn't, please do. I didn't yeah, do yeah. that part of the list, but did you watch the Bohemian Rhapsody? I have not seen it yet. I've heard such good things though. It's great. My kids are huge Queen fans, and so they just so I've seen it one bazillion times. It's amazing. Robbie Malik, right, is the yes. actor. Yes, Remy okay. Malik. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. Malick. Yeah. Uh, so I, I haven't seen the movie, but I have seen a lot of the performances are on totally. YouTube, and it's like. It, it, there's a biopics are tough because oh, yeah. there's a difference between doing a, an impression, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, to doing like an SNL take to being yeah. like the embodiment of the character, but also a unique take on it. And I feel like Rami Malik, just incredible, just unbelievable. And a person that you wouldn't necessarily pick from a, f- just like a physical appearance standpoint. Like I, I wouldn't see Rami Malik walking down yeah. the street and be like, that's that guy looks like Freddie Mercury. Yeah. But he embodied his kind of spirit and vibe so completely. It was amazing. I, I'm going to, since we're talking about real quick, I'm going to throw one more biopic recommendation because okay. it kind of ties into the memoir thing. Uh, Capote. Um, the the yes. one with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh my um, gosh. He was another writer that I kind of discovered late in life. Um, but I feel like it's... he That movie, it kind of traces him writing his breakout book in Cold Blood, mm-hmm. which is... 
I mean, I don't know if you, it's, it's it's safe to say launched the true crime genre, but certainly so. yeah. brought it to, you know, especially because true crime is kind of having a moment right now, especially mm-hmm. if someone's listening to this podcast, they've probably listened to a true crime podcast because we all have, because <laughs> right. like half a podcast. <laughs> first, first like podcast I ever people, listened to. Yeah, it's like people hanging out and trying to solve a murder that happened 30 years ago. Like mm-hmm. that's what a lot of podcasts, and I'm not throwing shade. It's just, it is what yeah. it is having a moment. But you know, Capote is tells the story. Stars Philip Seymour Hoffman, who who disappears into the role, is oh, incredible, unbelievable. And, and, and Truman Capote was kind of a, an interesting guy and had mm-hmm. a had an interesting kind of uh, a voice and just you know kind of way about him um, and in a class and a sort of. But mm-hmm. you take this like acclaimed New York City writer and drop him into just a horrific crime and as he tries to determine what the lines between entertainment exploitation and investigation are and that's questions that a lot of true crime writers are still wrestling with you know because he talked to the murderers and and and, and developed a relationship with him but you know, to the murderers, it was someone to vent to, to him, it was transactional. And a lot of the tension of that plays out, you know, if someone is interested in memoirs and, and interesting writers, I feel like that's a, such an interesting movie to check out as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, um, Capote, you know, would have been an easy person to caricature, had some real specific kind of affectations and mannerisms. And you're right. Philip Seymour Hoffman just embodied him in such a, um, kind of gracious way. Yeah. I think brought to life, um, brought a lot of life and humanity to that role. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It, yeah. Because he is a, fi- he's one of those like kind of purely American figures that it's easy to just, mm-hmm. care, you know, like uh, not, he's nothing like Elvis, but I think in people's mind, they think of, they think of the persona, not the person, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of the same ways. And that movie really did do a good job of kind of showing something interesting. Any, any other uh, uh, movies or books you want to shout out? Well, I wasn't sure if a series can count in the biopic journey. Let's do it. Let's do okay, it. Okay, The Crown, right? Like, I feel like watching yeah. Netflix, The Crown, watching those actors embody those historical um, characters is just incredible. Yeah. And, and I, this this one is... Um, I don't. Do you, do you ever read Michael Lewis? Do you ever read mm-hmm. any of his writing? Mm-hmm. He he wrote um, he wrote the book Moneyball, and he oh, also yeah. wrote the book. Oh, then I the did. Big, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read Moneyball. Yeah. So so he wrote Moneyball and Big Short, both of which yeah, were adapted. I read to both films. of those. Okay. And, and again, not really memoirs or biopics, but they're in the spirit of them. You know, those are trying great. to get to the 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 motivations of real life characters. Mm-hmm. He's another one that if people like this genre, they'd probably dig his. And he's got a great podcast too. Um, oh, really, Jesse? We haven't even talked about baseball. Hey, ha- you, I know I'm going to just stay on this okay, podcast all the, day long. Yeah, let's do it. So here, okay. I've had, I've had a very confused. So, so, uh, you and I were both big baseball fan. I'm wearing a Washington at world series champion, Washington nationals. Oh, that's why I wanted to talk to you because I, and, I don't think I even talked to you since your world series victory. Congratulations, it was, sir. It, it was, it I'm treating was you it. like you are a player on that team. Because uh, well, I, feel sort I, of I consider like, myself, you I know, know. pretty close to those guys, I know. <laughs> uh, but it was so, it was so unbelievable and to, to see, especially the drama of the, like you couldn't have, well, I mean, I'm sure you could script, but it pretty close because they were going against the Houston Astros in the world mm-hmm. series. I remember who have been revealed as, I mean, look, uh-huh. I'm not, Look, I'm not trying to call names, but they were cheating. They were cheating That's the, the game. Word for it. Yeah. They were villains. The the GM of the team was saying mm-hmm. really kind of just aw- was caught on record saying some really just awful problematic stuff. The Nats coming into last year were they were on the playoff bubble. They weren't ex- mm-hmm. they weren't World Series contenders. Mm-hmm. But they had also, that was the first year that they were without Bryce Harper, their main, you know, prospect who left the team, you know, I still like Bryce Harper, left the team for the Phillies, a bigger organization with more prestige. And it's fine. I hear that in your voice. It's fine. (laughs) And, and the, it was also what, what, what may be the last year because he opted out uh, of his, of playing this year, Ryan Zimmerman, who Mm -hmm. is from Virginia beach from, from my hometown. Oh, I didn't realize that. He was the first player, the Nationals drafted um, when they became when they went from the Expos to the Nationals. They, they drafted Ryan Zimmerman as their first pick. He also went to UVA um, here in Virginia, yeah. so he's sort of this hometown guy, um, and he's also a really great dude. He, his mother has MS, and he has a, an organization, and that's partly why he opted out this season because okay. he didn't want the risk mm-hmm. of exposing himself uh, to to uh, coronavirus. Um, but he's also kind of this is likely that was likely his last 
run. And oh, he was the he, he was the team's first draft hometown guy without Bryce Harper and played a huge role in winning the World Series against these villains. It it didn't get any better. Now, you you guys are Cubs fans, right? Absolutely. Big okay. Time. Uh what has it been weird? Like I, I've tried to get in. I, I I usually every other year I watch baseball almost every night. Yeah, is it weird watching baseball because I, it's hard for me with the cardboard? Like totally. every other sport, the way they frame the shots and the action, it makes you forget like quarantine and some mm-hmm. of the heaviness of it. I don't feel like baseball has done a good job of that this year. I feel that I I, rem- I remember distinctly the first couple games we watched, and I remember us being like, "You got to be kidding me! Like this isn't." I'm not even going to make it to the end of this game. This is so yeah. weird. Yeah. I will say we've watched enough now where it mostly feels okay. The thing that every once in a while drives me nuts is without the crowd noise and sort of like, um, I feel like the announcers have a really, really hard job. Yeah. And every once in a while it gets so boring. I, I'm like, oh my gosh, Aaron, make them what, stop. Like, well, I, I can't. Because when, when, it's, when it's boring in a normal baseball game, you can cut away right. to the kid eating the corn dog exactly. and like, or, or whatever, you know? But now it's like, they, you know, these cardboard cutouts. But as a Cubs fan, I do probably feel like you can relate to what the, the Nats win was like because, in a way, when the Cubs won, what year was that? It wasn't that long ago. 2016. Rem- yeah, 2016. Mm-hmm. You know, a curse breaking. I mean, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and the Nats have in no way have sort of the legacy uh, that one hundred and eight years yeah. without a World Series win. Yeah, yep. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks to a curse that involved <laughs> a, was it a goat? Uh, a goat. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and 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 wore this institution in Chicago and Wrigley yeah. Field is one yeah. of America's great treasures. Oh, it's you know, delightful. Na- Nationals Park was built like. 10 years ago, you know, but, but it did have the thing of, Hey, these guys, everybody was cheering for them. You know, totally. it That's was like, true. it was the same thing with the Nats. I felt like when they won, part of the fun was you felt like America was cheering with them. Like if I you mean, weren't we in were, Houston, we yeah. watched the whole series. We yeah. were totally cheering for the Nats because I think I remember there was an important series. Like there was an important playoff series in 2016 with the Cubs and the Nats and yeah. they played against Scherzer several yep. times and yeah. I just love him and he's just yeah. fun to watch and a great yeah. pitcher. And so that kind of made me a little more connected to that team. Yeah. And so like, yeah, we watched the whole series as Nats fans. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the the Nats love and, <laughs> and this, I don't know what's going to happen this baseball season, but next year I feel like baseball fingers crossed yeah. over the next couple of years when I think the first place I'm going to go and have you thought about that once everything I lifts? That's a good question. I, I I find myself thinking about it sometimes. And, you know, because we can still, you know, restaurants are kind of slowly kind of doing their thing. Yeah. But I think the first place I'm going to go is, uh, even if it's a triple A game, it's going to be yeah. a baseball game. There is something, did you go to a lot of Cubs games when you were we living used in Chicago? To. We used to go to a lot of games. And now we go to Mets games and Yankees games whenever we can. I, I mean, I just love being at a ballpark, but we used to go to a lot of Cubs games. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what I, we were talking about the other day. Cause we, you know, here in town, we have like the Norfolk tides, which is the triple a, which is a triple a franchise. Um, but even just going there, it there is, is something that, you know, I'm a lot, I love sports, but mm-hmm. you know, football is like an all day thing. Basketball yeah. is more like a nightlife kind of thing. Baseball is just, there's no better way to spend an afternoon than I totally agree. Then, then hanging out there. And, ballparks always have reasonably good food, you know, very good food quite often. I actually, when we were talking about making our lists, um, I was thinking, I I like the memoir category. I was thinking of, um, snacks you can buy at a gas station, AKA the hot pocket. Yes. Um, and then I was also thinking of ballpark food. So, hey, well, can we do this again and do either ballpark food? Yes. We should just roll them up and do ballpark food and snack because the, there's a Venn diagram. There's a lot of crossover there's there. There's a Venn diagram. Yeah. And, there's a lot of and, cheese product. Yeah. <laughs> and, and hot dog or a 7-Eleven brands them spicy big bites are the mm. middle of that Venn diagram. Yes, it kind of goes exactly out right. from there. Yes. So, yes. Well, Shauna, this was so much fun. It was great to catch up with you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and people can follow you at... S Nequist mm-hmm. on Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Any other mm-hmm. things coming down? I know kind of things are kind of weird holding patterns with pandemic. Any other things you got coming down the pipe for people to check out? I am uh, working on finishing a book, but um, I know better than to tell you the title that I think it will be today because I'm right in that phase where I change my mind every single day, but it's coming. It'll come uh, next year. I'll finish it uh, hopefully by January. So that's yeah, awesome. That's it. Well, Shauna, thanks again for doing this. And I do want to do that other one. I love ballpark food and I 
you know, eat a tremendous amount of gas station food. So I know I, I'll, I'll be you. very, I, I could do that. I could do the list off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I, as I'm drinking a Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee. Exactly. You know? yeah, yeah. This is, this is the blue collar working man's coffee right here. You know, for, I like it. It looks yeah, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shauna, this is fun. Thanks. Great to talk to you. 